Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We appreciate you. It has been 10 days since Trump lost the election and hasn't conceded. Yeah, I mean, it's still going. The countdown will count up at this point. Yes. <laughs> continues. Exactly. And coming up on today's show, the future of comedy in a post-Trump world. I'm super excited to have comedian Ben Glebe joining us for that, who actually has started a virtual comedy club during this entire time. So excited to talk to him about that. Plus, a photojournalist joins us to discuss what it's been like covering Trump's rallies for the past five years and what he's learned about how they've evolved. And actually, I think we have some uh, scary surprises in store for, for us for that conversation. He has a lot to share. Well, the article, he did a Slate.com interview, which is why we even saw him. And he already is going to be a good conversationalist. I can tell already. He's so good at oh, like, yeah. what he does. And I can't wait to know more about that experience. Imagine being at a Proud Boys rally, like literally in the midst of it, taking photos. I couldn't. Yeah. And this guy isn't on the right. So, but yeah, he de- he decides well, to. We don't know yet. His life to this. <laughs> we don't know yet until we talk to him. <laughs> we'll ask. Okay, let's get into some what's trending this hour, though. Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas called Senator Sherrod Brown a complete ass following a dispute over mask wearing on the Senate floor between the Ohio Democrat and Alaska Republican Senator Dan Sullivan. Senator from Ohio. I'd start by asking the presiding officer to please wear a mask as he speaks and people below him are, I can't tell you what to do, but I know that the behavior- I don't wear a mask when I'm speaking, like most senators. Well, I most senators- So I'll, I'll, but I don't need your instruction from- I know you don't need my instruction, but I, there clearly isn't much interest in this body in public health. We have a president who hasn't shown up at the coronavirus task force meeting in months. We have a majority leader that calls us back here to vote on an unqualified nominee. And, and at the same time to vote for judge after judge after judge, exposing all the people who can't say anything, I understand, the people in front of you and the presiding officer, and expose all the staff here 
and the, the majority leader just doesn't seem to care. Now, that dispute and video has since gone viral. Cruz criticized Brown over the incident in a tweet writing, this is idiotic, Sherrod Brown. He wears a mask to speak when nobody is remotely near him as an ostentatious sign of fake virtue. He was inches away from four people who had masks on but couldn't protect themselves from him. Uh, speaking to reporters today, Brown said, I don't care what they say to me. I care about public health. It's clear that McConnell and some of my Senate colleagues like Ted Cruz care nothing about essential workers. And as the, ma- as the mask wearing debate on the Senate floor continues, today the office of Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of o- Iowa did announce that he had been exposed to COVID-19 and would immediately quarantine. So that's happening right now in the Senate. Now let's move on to Rudy Giuliani today, who joined a court hearing over President Trump's effort to contest the election results in Pennsylvania, continuing to allege widespread national voter fraud and arguing against mail-in voting, which he called dangerous. He added that the Trump campaign would be filing at least four more lawsuits across the country in the coming days. Meanwhile, in another case in another court in the state, later today, a Pennsylvania Supreme Court rejected the Trump campaign's claim that Philadelphia violated state election law in the way it handled ballot observers at a city ballot counting center. I can't even uh, keep up with all the court hearings and cases and lawsuits, but it seems like none of them are landing Trump anywhere. I mean, at all. No, it's kind of wasted time. And it's so funny, the New York Times, they have a scoop um, that Rudy Giuliani (laughs) has asked President Trump to uh, pay him $20,000 a day. Like, he actually thinks he's worth that much, which is hilarious. Yes. Uh, Well, that allows him to continue staying in the spotlight, at least, right? Uh, And that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so uh, there is some drama afoot last night. I don't know what happened on the internet, but people and celebrities decided to be messy. Isaiah Washington, if you don't remember him, he played Dr. Preston Burke on Grey's Anatomy. He was fired um, after a whole ordeal. Well, guess what? He is reigniting that past drama with his former uh, Grey's Anatomy co-star, Katherine Heigl. Now, he posted a photo of her on Twitter saying, this woman once proclaimed that I should never be allowed to speak publicly again. The world agreed with her proclamation back then and protested for my job and my head in 65 languages. I wish I was on Twitter in 2007 because I will never stop expressing or exercising my free speech. Now, their feud began in 2007 after Washington got fired from Grey's Anatomy for basically using a homophobic slur to uh, refer to his co-star T.R. Knight during an argument that he was having with Patrick Dempsey. Now, Isaiah at the time, he issued an apology, but later denied that he even said it. Now, the reason why I guess Catherine said that he needs to stop talking again is because he was just literally, he got in trouble for saying it again at the Emmys uh, during the press when he was asked about it. He said the actual homophobic slur again. And so, honestly, I don't even know what his point is. He's some like really intense Trump supporter now, and he's like really wild. If you haven't checked out his Twitter, girl, you're in for a ride. Yeah. He is a a major Trump supporter, like, and is very open about it. He's one of the few celebrities who are. He's a black Republican. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I I met him years ago, but yeah, he's been very problematic. He's wild. He's very, very wild. Now, I um, am super sad to talk about this story because Conan O'Brien, he's ending his late night show after 28 years. He announced today that he'll finish his TBS series Conan at the completion of its 10th season in June 2021. However, though, 
though he does, uh, he has just signed on for a new weekly variety series on HBO Max. No details have been released yet. How I even started watching Conan O'Brien was from his popular travel specials, Conan Without Borders, where he's traveled, you know, from Greenland to Korea, all these places. And yeah, it's I actually really like that. He said that's going to continue on TBS. So if you're a Conan O'Brien fan, stick around for that because he got a lot of good stuff coming up. Oh, good for him. Continuing his career after this long. It's really awesome. Okay, now coming up on the show, Trump officials are rushing to auction off rights to an Arctic National Wildlife Refuge before Biden can block it. The impacts of this decision next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The Trump administration is allowing oil and gas firms to pick spots where they want to drill in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Now, this is Trump's latest move to open up public lands to logging, mining and grazing before President-elect Biden is in office. And here to share more is senior national affairs correspondent from The Washington Post, Julia Alprin. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So for some context, how important is this refuge? It is really an iconic refuge and hugely important ecological spot in the United States. Um, It provides key habitat for polar bears, the southern Beaufort Sea population, which we're only down to a few hundred of. So it's it's critical in terms of denning, particularly because as sea ice melts, they're spending more time on land, including in this area. You've got thousands of migrating caribou which go through the refuge every year, as well as hundreds of thousands of migrating waterfowl, their Arctic foxes. So this is really one of these places that is relatively untouched and provides critical habitat for you know, plants and animals that help define the country for hundreds and thousands of years. Why is Trump rushing to do this? Is this a political move or a personal one that he could benefit from once he's out of office? Because we know he's broke. This is not, there's no evidence uh, that I've seen that, you know, he would benefit personally, financially from this. This has been a goal of particularly the Republican Party for decades. They have tried to open up the refuge to drilling really for, you know, something like four decades. And in fact, President Trump was quite pleased that he was able to accomplish this when the 2017 budget bill was signed into law, which is what actually gives the Interior Department permission to do this. This is when Republicans had control of both uh, the House and Senate and White House. Trump liked to brag that he had achieved something that his predecessors, including Republican predecessors, had not. So that's that's part of why they're even mm. Even if Trump is allowing this to happen, can't Biden just reverse this when he is in office? So what impact will it actually make? Well, it really depends. And this is why you're seeing this rush at the end of whether they can actually get these leases signed before Inauguration Day. If they can, it is really hard to claw back oil and gas leases once they're issued. Although there are plenty of things that a new administration could do to make it very difficult to drill in terms of the federal permits that you'd need. So what is actually kind of interesting is that you both have a slew of environmental groups that are challenging the very idea of doing an oil and gas leasing program on the refuge right now. If Mm -hmm. the lawsuits were to prevail, that could invalidate the leases. Or there's an interesting scenario where as they really try to get this auction done in time, that they could have selected the highest bidders for these leases. But if they don't actually get the contract signed before Trump leaves the White House, that might provide an opening for a new administration. 
and validate them. Wow, it's very nerve-wracking. Again, we're talking to Senior National Affairs Correspondent from the Washington Post, Juliet Alprin, about these rights that are being auctioned off for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. And I really want to talk about, as we're talking about this, new, the new administration, could this impact or look bad on a, on Biden as climate group, uh, like change groups like Sunrise Movement are already calling for action from him? Well, you know, it, without, you know, there there's a limit to what he can do before he's elected. He has come out very strongly against the idea of drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. He's called it a disaster. So on that nothing more that he could do at this point that groups could expect from him. But you raise a really interesting point, which is a number of these groups, including the Sunrise Movement and others, are going to be pressuring him to follow through on his commitment, which is no new oil and gas leases or permits on federal land or in federal waters when he's president. Right. And that actually is a it's going to be challenging for him to deliver on that. And that's really where they're going to be holding his feet to the fire. Yeah. Why would it be challenging if this is something he decides to do? There will always be, I guess, those climate deniers, right? Specifically, we've seen it on the Republican side. But how hard will it be to implement? Well, they're both legal and political questions. So on the legal front, there are, there, there are two different laws, one which affects leasing on land and one which affects leasing in the ocean. And both of them actually do call for regular lease sales conducted by the federal government. So it's you can suspend it for a while, but there's a question of whether you can do it indefinitely. It's much harder, and again, as we were just talking, once a company has a lease to ban them from ever drilling, you're essentially it's considered a taking. You're kind of denying them the economic value of something they have bought from the federal government. So that raises a whole set of questions. And then there's a really interesting political question, which is there are Democrats who actually support drilling because it's a major source of yeah. revenue, including, yeah. for example, Democratic states like New Mexico. New Mexico's governor, <laughs> who actually identifies climate change as a priority, has been doing a lot on it. But she has already said she's going to ask for a waiver if President-elect Biden imposes a ban on drilling on federal land because it provides hundreds of millions of dollars each year to New Mexico to fund everything from schools to hospitals. Wow. That leaves us with a lot of questions. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for this. Very welcome. Again, that was Senior National Affairs Correspondent Julia Alprin from The Washington Post. Now coming up on the show, Biden has announced more of his senior White House staff picks. More details on that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. President-elect Joe Biden announced additional senior White House staff picks today, opting for some of his longest serving aides to, quote, serve alongside newer players in his orbit and key roles in the West Wing. The Biden-Harris transition team also announced senior staff for Dr. Jill Biden. To talk about these picks, we've got Jackie Copel, political commentator, back with us. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Happy Tuesday. I know. Happy Tuesday. So are you surprised about some of these? What are some standout ones for you? I'm not super surprised. It seems like, you know, the folks who have been with Biden for through the years are are sticking with him and he's sticking with them. Then you also see, obviously, some folks, you know, rising through the ranks, including his campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon. They actually she was not expected to serve in the White House. But, you know, I think she was successful. And I think that she probably wants to see her work through. And likewise, the campaign, she obviously knew what she was doing. So uh, having her around, they believe will be of benefit. 
she's it's not a surprise per se but since it wasn't expected i think that's why people are like oh wow great but you're seeing a lot of folks who have served with biden and you are seeing biden recognizing with his selections recognizing the diversity or recognizing a need to follow through on his promise of diversity throughout the ranks not just with who i'm sure is coming down down the pike with cabinet secretaries but certainly with senior aides and and people in high positions diversity of gender, diversity of race, et cetera. You know, on his various committees, you're seeing more than 50% women on some of them. You're seeing, you know, people of color being represented in very real ways. And I think it's both an acknowledgement of, hey, let's have our government look like the rest of the country, but also an acknowledgement of who helped get him there, right? And it was black voters in South Mm -hmm. Carolina that handed him a huge win in the primary that turned the race around for him. And it was black, especially black women who have worked to register people to vote and be activists, especially in states like Georgia, to help flip that state as just a recognition that, you know, if you fight with him, you get, you know, the the spoils go to the victor. And likewise, this should be the case uh, with folks who helped him get to the White House. Yeah. And the big challenge I think Joe Biden's going to find is how to incorporate and making sure there's enough progressives and moderates a part of his team. What do you think he's going to run to challenges wise when it comes to that? I think his biggest challenge is going to be balancing his desire to find common ground and to find a compromise with the needs to fulfill on the promise to both moderates and progressives that he is on their team. And it's not just a let's just kumbaya it out here. I think that's going to be the the interesting thing. Oftentimes in administrations, you see sort of one position, you know, like a key position, a cabinet or a secretary or something, go to a member of the opposition party. And I think that that is, you know, they're saying that is likely here, that someone who's like a very moderate Republican who endorsed Biden and who said, hey, you know, Republicans, let's go there. Uh, it is likely, I think, that he does nominate someone who is from what maybe the old version of the Republican Party. But I think the, that uh, generally speaking, yeah, that it's a fine line that he has. It's a tightrope walk that he has to make to make sure that progressives are happy and feel that their voices are heard. Uh, and also that moderates don't feel like they are getting uh, pushed out and that the moderate voter and the moderate um, legislator and, and the moderate uh, White House worker has a has a place and a voice. Yeah. Jackie Capel, again, is with us, political commentator. Now, as this transition is happening and he's making some good decisions on the other side of the aisle, we got Trump continuing to move forward with decisions like having the Pentagon pull troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, of course, uh, his coronavirus advisor, Scott Atlas, urging people on Twitter to rise up against governor's mask mandates. How will these decisions impact the Biden administration? It's definitely a situation where Biden's going to have to do a lot of course correction, not just from a tangible, literally turning policies around, but he's, and he's going to want to, I mean, he doesn't have to, but I think he's going to want to. Um, But it's also from a messaging standpoint. I mean, Atlas does not have a, uh, I think it's fair to say in the general scientific community, he's not particularly well regarded. And his appointment was pretty heavily criticized. However, as we have seen, folks who follow the president, or I should say President Trump, follow him and listen to him and, and applaud when people support the things that Trump is saying, 
you know, Atlas is is going to get kudos for that. Keep in mind, he also knows he does not have many, many more days on the job. So Atlas yeah. is also, I'm sure, strategically trying to align himself with Trump to help set himself up for, you know, the post-Trump administration and what his life and income and career path look like. I don't think that anyone at this point saying any of these things, they're not doing it. There's no for the good of the country that's happening. I, I think it's a fair, maybe they would not say that this was fair, but if I'm reading between, like, I'm reading or seeing forest through the trees, I think it seems pretty obvious that strategically what they're doing is trying to align themselves with Trump uh, and they're not actually talking about the health, uh, the public health and safety factor. If you are concerned about health and safety, you are, as a doctor, you are not going to then say rise up against mass mandates. All right. Well, Jackie Coppell, thanks again for being with us for this. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jackie Coppell can be found on Instagram at Jackie A. Coppell with all her political reports. Now coming up, is student loan forgiveness finally here? We discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. So student loan borrowers haven't made payments since March. Are you one of those people, by the way, Ryan? Have you not made any student loan payments? First of all, that's none of your business. Uh, you all up in my pocket. Give me your social security number I'm like, now. That is none of your business. Um, but no, yeah, I, I pay. I still try to pay a little something, something, because I don't want to get too far behind. But yes, it is true, true that interest is not. I know the interest on some of the loans are like are, are most of the loans. They're not. It has stopped. And so like, yeah, you can just pay like the bare minimum. But to be honest, no, they ain't really getting my money. All right. Well, this is going to expire on December 31st, unless President Trump or Congress acts to extend it. And we know where that's at right now. Right. And if the deadline isn't pushed back, millions of student loan payments will come due a couple of weeks before President-elect Joe Biden takes office on January 20th. And that could create a ton of confusion for borrowers as well as a mess for student loan processors who aren't built to suddenly stop or start payments. So we're already in a chaotic place. There's more chaos to come if something does not happen now. Yes. And actually, the thing that I was mentioning earlier, I wanted to be a little bit more clear. The suspension and interest waiver only applies to the federally held loans. So um, that's about 85% of federal student loans. That kind of covers that roughly. But for me personally, I have federal loans, but then I also have like private loans, which are Sally May loans. And that's really going to be the thing that kind of screws everyone. Because who knows if you got loans from Sally May? That's not a federal loan. Those are more private. And so you may still have to pay those back. And so it could really be a situation where it's like when you're talking about canceling student debt, what does that mean across the board? Well, yeah. So and Biden's campaign really had pushed erasing 10,000 for roughly 37 million Americans who have federally backed student loan debt. But now as this transition is happening, a lot of people are wondering, hey, can he use executive power to forgive student debt altogether? Is that even a reality here in our future? What do you think? I mean, Chuck Schumer's already basically talking about how he's been trying to, uh, he said that you know, Biden's going to be able to do cancel $50,000 in student loan debt yeah. um, in the first 100 days. So I don't know. Maybe it can happen. Yeah, him and uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is definitely pushing for that. But, you know, Biden has been kind of trying to sidestep those questions from reporters and the public. He yesterday expressed support for the House Democrat stimulus package, which would extend the suspension of payments through September 20. 20- 
21 and cancel some student debt. But there's no word as to whether he can actually use an executive order to do that or whether he would even want to do that, right? Because it's complex, right? It's not so so simple as to just saying, hey, we're going to cancel this altogether. Everyone's free to go. I, I don't know. But I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think you know, minor- Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren wouldn't be pushing for this, especially Elizabeth Warren, who was known for being the I have a plan woman um, during her time when she was running for president. I, I have to push back in this idea of like, I think they have the, you know, the, the all of their T's crossing their eyes dotted when it comes to this. I think a lot of the narrative is it's not going to be as easy as we think. And to be quite honest, I do think it's going to be difficult. But if they are saying that we are at a place where we can do it, then I have to be- kind of believe them, especially more so really believe Elizabeth Warren, because she's kind of proven herself as someone who has a plan and knows how to dissect that plan to make sure everything is in line. Yeah, and she has a background in education. So I do agree with you in terms of the, you know, taking a bit of student debt. The $50,000 in student loan debt per borrower could be amazing. So that's the latest update there and some options, but we will see. Coming up on the show, a COVID-19 vaccine delivery program is on the way. What does that even look like? That's next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, a photographer who covered five years of Trump rallies joins us to share his stories. This should be interesting. Uh, plus, the future of comedy virtually and without Trump in office, comedian Ben Glebe joins us for that. And we always love him on the show, that's for sure. Oh, I love Ben Glebe. Ever since you took me to his house and I met him on his birthday party, that was just a, such a mm-hmm. fun time. I miss being able to go outside. Yes, those were the days pre-COVID. By the way, you're referencing a time when it wasn't during the pandemic. If anyone's wondering. Oh my God. Duh. I just literally started crying over saying I miss being outside. That yes. that implies that. Thank you. Okay, let's get into some what's Shira wants to make app. sure you know she's following the rules. Hey, it's just me and my crystals here, so I'm all good. Even though she's never followed the rules during this pandemic. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a trope that he has on this show. <laughs> it's a narrative. <laughs> yes, your narrative. Okay, so now Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg was questioned during a virtual Senate hearing today. And here's Senator Richard Blumenthal asking Zuckerberg about why they didn't shut down Steve Bannon's account after he threatened to murder government officials, including beheading Dr. Anthony Fauci. Here's what he had to say. As you say, the content in question did violate our policies and we took it down. Having a content violation does not automatically mean your content, your your, your account gets taken down. And the number of strikes varies depending on the amount, the, the type of offense. So. If people are posting terrorist content or child exploitation content, then the first time uh, that they do it, then we will we will take down their account. Um, for other things, it's it's multiple. Um, I'd be happy to follow up afterwards. We we try not to um, will disclose you these down his account. Will you commit to taking down Steve Bannon's account? Senator, no, it's that that's not what our policies would suggest that we should do. I love how he was like, you know. We can continue this discussion. Like, let's let's offline this discussion. And you're like, no, that's why he's doing this in front of the nation and the world, because he wants to see what you say. Get offline a Senate hearing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mess. Now, yeah, it still seems to be a complicated scenario for Zuckerberg. Relationship complicated. 
Now, Amazon's new online pharmacy opened today. It lets you buy medication and order refills on your phones or other devices oh. and have it delivered to your doorsteps in a couple of days. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Just like a book or toilet paper. And this moves Amazon into a new business, potentially shaking up the pharmacy industry as it has done to everything from booksellers to toy stores and grocers. But I don't like Amazon's interface. Like their website is hideous. They need, if they got all this money and it still looks like that. It honestly is not my vibe. And that's the reason really, to be honest, I don't really use Amazon. And so yes, it, this could be a huge deal. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I just can't get into it. Yeah, I don't get why the administration is just questioning Google when Amazon seems to be taking over and just ruining Slowly. every industry. Yeah, for right? sure. <laughs> and in another incentive for Prime members, Amazon is also teaming up with Cigna's Evernorth subsidiary to offer its Inside RX card. And so that's going to provide discounts on brand name prescription drugs when buying them without insurance on Amazon Pharmacy and some 50,000 participating drugstores. So yeah, they are making a big leap into this and we know how they work. They're probably going to win at this game. Now, Pfizer, let's move on to what they're doing. They've announced that Rhode Island, Texas, New Mexico, and Tennessee were chosen for the launch of their coronavirus immunization pilot program to help with planning vaccine delivery and deployment. And according to the company, the states were chosen because of their, quote, differences in overall size, diversity of populations, and immunization infrastructure, as well as the state's need to reach individuals in varied urban and rural settings. So yeah, we're going to have that on demand, I guess, as things continue. And that was somewhat trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Oh my God, I have the cutest story to talk about in the T-Report. It has to do with George Clooney. Um, you know, you love his wife, Amal. Oh yeah, I love them. He is finally uh, confirming he was in GQ's Man of the Year issue. And George Clooney is finally confirming one incredible story about how he repaid 14 of his closest friends for all their support over the years. He gave them each a million dollars in cold, hard cash. Hello, friendship. I mean, where's friends like that? Well, I guess his longtime buddy, Rand Gerber, first shared the story in 2017. But when speaking with G uh, GQ, they're asking him the important questions here, being like, okay, so tell us what happened here. And he goes into the full detail of this moment. He basically says, Amal and him, they had just met. They weren't dating yet. Mm -hmm. He was single. He was aging. All his friends were older than him. And he had some major success coming from Gravity, his film. And um, he he mm -hmm. was just like, well, why not? Why, you know, if I die now, they're already in my will. And so he was like, I'm wow. just going to do it this way. And so he came, he went to a place downtown with some security guards where he was able to basically <laughs> get a whole bunch of cash. He rolls up on his friends with bags of like literally oh, a million dollars. And he, he even points to say that weight wise, it's not as much as you think it would be. But the <laughs> sweetest thing about this story was his favorite detail to point out he picked up the cash on September 27th 2013 and it was exactly one year before he married Amal Clooney 
I mean, this makes me like him even more. I know, right? I just, I saw the story and was like, it's a little long to tell, but you better strap it. We gonna go ahead and talk about it because I just can't imagine giving all of the friends and people around uh, him, like he literally said he ran into some like rich a-hole in Las Vegas. And he was like, I guess that person asked, well, why would you do something like that? And he was like, well, why wouldn't you do that, you schmuck? Mm. And you know, I think that is so important to, you know, pay back the people that really impacted your life and uh, I'm obsessed with him and that's your tea report y'all check out more of that story I love on channelq.com we are channelq.com there are good rich people out there in the world and good celebrities mm-hmm. uh, now coming up we've been uh, talking about this a photographer who covered five years of Trump rallies is joining us his name is Zach D. Roberts and let me tell you he has some stories and how he sees our country evolving that's next Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. What is the future of comedy in a post-Trump world? While many comedians drag Trump, he also never failed to deliver content and ratings. So where will SNL, The Daily Show, and Late Night Shows go from here? Well, comedian Ben Glebe is joining us. He is also the founder of the Virtual Nowhere Comedy Club that launched in quarantine. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ryan and Shira. Oh, wow. That was enthusiastic. It was really intense. (laughs) Did you you find the comedy world thrived on Trump's chaos? I've been drinking a lot of coffee this morning. Um, Comedy world always thrives. This is the golden age of comedy. We don't need an orange monster eroding our values and trying to tear our country apart to get comedy from it. In fact, I think he became old news and you couldn't avoid it. And so we all got dragged into being hacky comics because of how repetitively evil and monstrous he was. So we're fine. We are fine. It's always overblown. Whenever Trump comes in, is comedy dead because Trump's going to be so ridiculous you can't make fun of somebody more than he already is. And he's gone. Is it going to be? No, we're going to be just fine. Comedy always survives. Society can't survive without comedy. Yeah, I think, but comedy has always been kind of political, right? Do you think it's been more political over this time? And is it going to stay that way? It definitely has become more political just because our lives are on the line and our values are being eroded every day. And so if you're a person of conscience, you have to speak up. And so while still plenty of comedians aren't doing so, many more are, I think, than typically would. And will it stay that way? I think we are going to be very eager to run right back, most comedians, to run right back to the safe hills of lighter fare. But mine's always been political and it'll always stay there. Believe me, I've got plenty of comedy that's not political, but... Mm -hmm. Politics always infuses what I do, and it's going to stay that way. And also, now that he won the election, with respect to President-elect Biden, he ain't a shortage of comedy. Yeah. I mean, come on. The guy does speeches about his leg hair. I mean, we're going to be just fine. Okay, well, yeah, speaking of that, a lot of these shows, their ratings went up because of a lot of this Trump content. We couldn't wait to see Alec Baldwin as Trump on SNL. Do you think they're worried? No. They're not worried. Alec Baldwin will be relieved. He's sick of playing Trump anyway. They're not worried at all. They're not worried at all. It'll be able to finally do comedy that doesn't also feel the responsibility of helping save the republic. Mm -hmm. We'll be able to be just funny again and not carry such a heavy load on our shoulders. Plus, Baldwin's Trump is good, but it's not as good as my Trump. Okay, a lot of people are saying it's not as good as my Trump. A lot of people are talking about it. Okay. 
But Ben, you said something really interesting, this idea of them having to kind of save the Republic. Inherently, if comedy is supposed to make people feel good, it's kind of already doing that. So why and what would be different about it moving forward? Because it feels like it's always going to have to be there to save someone or something. Yes, but comedy, you know, we often are the last truth tellers and we're the only in in a post-truth era where we literally don't know fact from fiction anymore. One of the last bastions of truth is comedy clubs and is comedy writing and comedy material. And so we, during the Trump era, have I have I have felt the extreme pressure to make points that will hope, hopefully, get people to see that the person they are supporting is a danger to all of us, including themselves. That's a lot heavier of a weight to have to bear than to say, "Oh, I just want you you to see how we're doing." thing X or thing Y a little bit wrong in society that we can marginally improve ourselves. It's not so immediately existential. Mm-hmm. And so I think it'll just take I guess a- it depends on what communities are affected by just anything going on, right? Because I think it is, um, it can be looked at as a, either a privilege of being like, well, I don't have to kind of really do that anymore because it's not like Trump is in the White House. Even with Biden and Harris, they could make some crappy decisions. You just never know. So I guess inherently, do you think the fire behind kind of activism being included in your comedy is always going to be there? It'll always be in mine, like I said, but it won't be in a lot of comedians. And I, I disagree with that. I think we certainly are living in, in tumultuous, troubled times, regardless of right. where you fall in the political spectrum and regardless of whether Trump's in office. And for sure, there are plenty of communities that any fair-minded person, any moral person should be allied with and fighting for the advancement of them to be finally treated as equals in this world like white men have the privilege of being for so long, of which I'm sort of one, I guess. And so... <laughs> thank you thank you and so and so let me say so so i totally agree with that but i even will push back slightly in saying that this will be a much better time for artists and activists alike and just general human beings to help advance the causes of other communities of marginalized communities now better than ever because we don't have the immediate existential risk on top of our shoulders of trump trying to tear the whole nation down like for example it's very hard to advance lgbtq rights when also every day we don't know if we're going to have a country tomorrow in which any of us can be free you know what i'm saying so we get to finally focus on all of the important issues that have been not only held back but pushed backwards in time by trump where now we have to try to come back to even where we were four years ago Yeah, as we wrap things up, I just want you to talk about just Nowhere Comedy Club and what you've been doing during the pandemic. And is this the future of comedy? Yeah, so I mean, it's been an insane time because the whole world shut down. And one of the first things to close was live entertainment. And so I created the world's first virtual comedy venue called Nowhere Comedy. And we've been putting on shows. I created with Steve Hofstadter. We've been putting on shows for the last seven months uh, a full comedy club experience from the comfort of your home, all for much cheaper than you could if you went out into the world to go to a show and didn't need to pay for a babysitter or parking or two drink minimum or all that. And it's been incredible. So if you want to get tickets to any of those shows, you can just go to NowhereComedyClub.com. And if you want a discount to mine, you can put in the promo code, promo code, all caps, oh, no spaces. Okay. 
Wow, that's that easy. Well, that is the future of comedy. That's that's sure. the future right there. That it comes right into your house. Another possible lockdown. Ben Glebe, thank you again for being here. It's my pleasure. Anytime. I love the conversation. Well, coming up, and we love it too, by the way. <laughs> yes. And uh, coming up on the show, a photographer who has spent the last five years covering Trump rallies joins us to share what he's learned and his warning to the country. That's next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Photographer Zach D. Roberts has been chronicling Donald Trump's rallies from the beginning. Imagine that. And he was there last weekend on the ground for the Million MAGA March in Washington. Zach D. Roberts, photojournalist, joins us right now over Zoom. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So this is pretty wild. You've been covering right-wing rallies long before Trump was in politics, including NRA marches back in 2006. When and why did you start to focus on this? You know, I'm actually sitting outside of the uh, Fulton Board of Elections right now because I'm down in Georgia uh, covering the election, continued election going on down here. I originally started working in covering uh, voting suppression in the 2004 race and the 2008 race and covering how basically, you know, Jim Crow has kind of continued on via even though the Voting Rights Act is still around. And then I started noticing that all of these people that were behind voter suppression in Arizona and Georgia and Mississippi were connected to these far right, usually white nationalist anti-immigrant groups, eventually like Secretary of State of Kansas, Chris Kobach, who basically had white nationalists on his staff and that sort of thing. Basically, he's behind SB 1070, if you remember the you know Papers, Please Law in Arizona. And he literally, he's a member and part of white nationalist organizations. I think anti-immigrant is too light of a word for the right. groups that he's attached to. And it kind of just trickled there from there is that I was familiar with the, the names of the people that would show up to these rallies, see the talking points that they would use, and then obviously jump forward a couple of years uh, between NRA and CPAC, you know, groups and stuff like that, that I, that I covered as well, is that you started having Donald Trump. And then I started seeing his messaging. I mean, you had Donald Trump beforehand, you know, messaging, using anti-immigrant messaging, using basically using a megaphone. Uh, you know, when he was calling Obama, Kenyan and all this. Oh, yeah. The birthism claims. Right. Yeah. And I think yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's so yeah. interesting. You talk about kind of over the years, ha- how it's changed. What made yeah. the Million MAGA March different for you? Like what when you were in that moment, what did you feel that was just like, oh, this is new. This feels different. So a lot of people, I think that, I mean, Joe Biden's campaign was messaged a lot. I mean, like, I'm going to be able to bring people together. I'm going to bring people, you know, kind of, you know, bring them out of the the fold of Donald Trumpism and that sort of thing. I've been screaming, I don't know how you're going to do that because these people are are gone uh, in a lot of ways. And the fact that 10 to 15,000 minimum showed up in the streets of Washington weeks after an election that showed that Joe Biden had won several states over the minimum you know, for electoral college that, and, you know, so you had all these groups kind of coming together and you didn't just have them showing up because there's one thing about them just showing up and they're off to the side. You know, I mean, you might have a, you might have a, uh, a George Bush rally and then have Westboro Baptist, you know, back in the day show up there. But even the Bush supporters back then were like, no, these, these people do not represent us. But you had literally, you had hundreds of of, uh, Donald Trump MAGA supporters cheering and thanking the Proud Boys as they mm. marched through town and literally shoved a journalist away. They had threatened. So I, I, I usually can handle death threats and, and, and threats in general pretty well when I'm covering these things. It's relatively normal. But getting one before I've had my coffee and before 9.30 a.m. was the first for me. This rally, you know, I had one of them threaten me because I was videotaping them. And so it's the adamant 
nature of it. It's not just they're, they're not just rallying for Trump and hoping that it is they are convinced 100 percent that he is going to win, that he is going to serve at least four more years, if not another four after that, because he deserves it, according to them. But also the yeah. edges of almost everybody I talked to had at least a little bit of the QAnon conspiracy in their in their conversation. They were talking about how all of the Democrats, I mean, you could uh-huh. name a Democrat and be like, oh, they're a pedophile. Uh, Zachary yeah. Roberts, photojournalist, joins us right now, who's been covering Trump rallies the past five years, and even before that was covering far-right, uh, right-wing rallies since 2006. I guess, you know, you are a journalist, so I would assume your own political beliefs don't get in the way. However, it's hard in this situation where these types of people are in your face. How do you separate what you believe in and what you're covering and at any point, have you felt like, I don't want to continue putting a spotlight on these individuals? Well, I mean, first thing I'd say is that I think that there, there's a line. I mean, whether or not I go out and be like, well, I support Bernie Sanders, I support Hillary Clinton, no. What I will say, though, is that I'm an anti-fascist. And I think that if you're a journalist, you should be an anti-fascist. Whether you're a supposedly card-carrying member of Antifa is a different story. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going out and marching and, you know, and, and, and doing anything else like that. I will cover them. But, but like... I think that it's pretty easy to not be fair and balanced or to to be fair and balanced. But the way to be fair and balanced with groups like these are to be honestly what they are. You're a racist. Yes, the Proud Boys have African-American and Hispanic and even supposedly a, a trans member. You know, they claim that they're not racist, but I can hear what you say. I can hear what you tell me in interviews. And I can hear that when you talk about Western chauvinism and that the West is the best, and the, the idea that America has never done anything wrong and that colonialism isn't wrong and that Pinochet down in Chile, like, it was okay. Actually, it was good that he threw people out of helicopters, murdering right. them. Like, there's a level of uh, very straight journalism that I, I have a line. Again, we're talking to photojournalist Zach D. Roberts, and we'll be back with more of Let's Go There and him right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. If you're just tuning in, we've been talking to photojournalist Zach D. Roberts, who has been following Donald Trump's rallies from the beginning. We've seen so many protests happening, and this one, seeing the streets being flooded with Proud Boys, it's chilling in all all honesty. But when you see it get violent and you're out there, how are you handling that? What is your plan in in those moments? I always say that, you know, I mean, like when I wanted to become a photojournalist, I thought that, okay, I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to go to Bosnia. You know, when I was, that was what's happening when I was a kid. And, you know, I'm going to wear a bulletproof vest. I'm going to have a helmet. I'm going to have all that stuff. I've got those right. I'm doing this interview for my car and I've got those in my trunk right now. I have a ballistic helmet uh, that can take a, a, a nine millimeter round to the head. And I got a bulletproof vest and I have two gas masks and things like that. And so like, I'm prepared that way and that, and that sort of prep. But I mean, I always run in a group and luckily, you know, we all run, we all keep each other's back in that way. And, you know, they keep my safe. I, I don't expect the police to keep me safe. Actually, I was going to ask you, are police less intense at these rallies compared to what you, you've seen with counter protesters or Black Lives Matter uh, protests oh, absolutely. and absolutely. demonstrations? Absolutely. It's like night and day. Yeah. Um, the way that police act. I've covered, you know, I've covered protests of every single different kind. They had There was stronger police presence at the Women's March than there was here at this one. And, you know, I mean, and when you have actual white nationalist groups that I saw some of them carrying, you know, buck knives and stuff like that. I don't know what the laws are in D.C., so I don't know if it's actually illegal or not. But, you know, to bring offensive weapons, not just defensive weapons, which, mind you, they went out there with, you know, they had shields. They were ready for ready for anything. 
and and they're you know they're prepped and they they kind of you know ramp themselves up beforehand to go out to these things yeah you know um, honestly i'm least, surprised that you're not a target you know like i i feel like they've seen you as a photographer right yeah. and you're immediately tagged yeah. the fake news media how has yeah. that impacted you do they automatically come to you being like oh you can't take photos of us we know what you're about i mean like it's very happy that i have a privilege i'm blonde hair blue eyed mm -hmm. white unlike you know some of my other colleagues that have to worry about things you know and whether that just be my my friend emily molly who's a tiny white girl and she usually she has she's able to get in to talk to some people, but then also she gets, you know, threatened all the time um, by by, you know, people who attack her because she's a woman. And so, like, I'm able to use that and get in. Thankfully, one good thing about COVID is wearing masks. And so, like, even if people know who I am in general, because, you know, I do radio, I do t unlike a lot of photojournalists, I do do these things because I feel like it's really important to talk about that. It's important to cover these things and cover them in a very specific way. Not just, you know, live, not just give security cam footage of it, not just say, oh, there's 15,000 people in the rally and not really talk about, well, who was there? Because Trump supporters is a big Venn diagram that includes everybody from, you know, David Duke to uh, uh, my uncle. So, yeah, Zach, I guess as we wrap things up, what's the biggest takeaway from the years of, of covering this and now seeing what's happened in this Trump movement and now as we move forward? Where, where does that leave your work and our country? Yeah, well, that's, you know, unfortunately, um, what, what I do worry about in the, in the coming four or four years is that there's already, I mean, you can you look at my Twitter feed and see people going, you shouldn't have shown up to cover this. You, you just, you know, suck the oxygen out of the room and that'll make them go away. To some level that helps, you know, when you're deplatforming and taking away Facebook and Twitter and things like that from these groups. But when you don't pay attention to them, we didn't pay attention to them through the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. And we like to pretend that the Klan went away, that white nationalism went away and things like that. It didn't. It festered on the internet and in message boards and things like that, and then grew and became the Donald Trump presidency. And so now that Joe Biden's in office, I deeply worry that the, I say the left in the most general way, left of fascism basically, will be like, okay, good, we can go to brunch and we don't have to care about this anymore. We don't have to confront fascism every day like we have had. You know, this, especially this year, you know, the Black Lives Matter. I don't think Black Lives Matter is going to go away. That's not, that's, I don't worry about them. What I do worry is about the kind of like the 800,000 people that showed up in D.C. at the Women's March and things like that, like the kind of weekend activists that like, oh, I hashtag resistance, that sort of thing. I need those people to continue to care about this because otherwise it's just going to be a handful of us people that are out there covering this. And that's when we, we become, it becomes really, really dangerous. And maybe they're not going to have, you know, 5,000 person rallies fitted in Charlottesville or something like that. Or the, and they won't have Donald Trump. Maybe they will continue to have Donald Trump rallies. You know, who knows what Donald, what he's going to do. But they, they will still be working. Zach, thank you so much for your time and for your work. And really the, the words that we all need to hear where the work continues, right? We can't yeah. ignore what, yeah. what's happening in front of us. Again, that was Zach D. Roberts, a photojournalist. Where can people follow you online and all your work? Uh, on Twitter, it's uh, ZD Roberts. That's the best place, ZD Roberts on Twitter. All right, thanks again. Thanks so much. Now coming up, can mouthwash actually stop you from getting COVID-19? We've got the answer for you next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, what you need to know about the two vaccines that have been announced and which one is better for COVID-19, that is. Just to clarify. Well, yes, for if sure. If you were wondering. <laughs>
right? When you say vaccines right now, I think everyone knows what you're talking and about. And my T-Report has a special vaccine-related, um, you know, celebrity story. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Love that. Well, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham... He keeps on getting in trouble. He was on the defense today over disclosures that he had contacted state election officials in states won by Joe Biden in an apparent effort to get them to disqualify some ballots. And here is Graham being questioned by NBC News reporters today. No, that's ridiculous. I talked to him about how you verify signatures. Right now, a single person verifies signatures. And I suggested as you go forward, can you change it to make sure that a bipartisan team verifies signatures and if there's a dispute, come up with a field process. So he called his staff call Saturday, trying to hook me up with a media outlet so I could say something nice about it. I, I thought it was a nice conversation. Well, why is a senator from South Carolina calling the secretary of state in Georgia anyway? Uh, because uh, the future of the country hangs in the balance. I, I really appreciate his clarification there, although I don't think it's going to work because, you know, the Washington Post reported yesterday that Graham had called Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, late last week seeking to have legally cast absentee ballots disqualified, which could cut into Biden's 13,300 vote lead over President Trump there. And next up, mouthwash can kill COVID-19 within 13 seconds of exposure in a lab. That's from a new UK study. Don't sound so excited about mouthwash. (laughs) Mouthwash. I am. I like mouthwash. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I hope everyone does. It's it's very good for your your hygiene in in your mouth. Uh Uh-huh. So the results of research conducted at Cardiff University indicate that over-the-counter mouthwashes containing at least 0.07% Cetipiridinium chloride, that's also known as CPC, showed, quote, promising signs of being able to destroy the virus when exposed in a lab setting. This is what Dr. Nick Clayton said. And these positive results reflected in Cardiff University's clinical trial, CBC-based mouthwashes could become an important addition to people's routine, together with hand washing, physical distancing, and wearing masks, both now and in the future. So if you haven't added mouthwash to your daily routine, Maybe you should start. I mean, to be honest, mouthwash burns like it can kill it through anything. Like, it honestly feels like there's acid in your mouth sometimes. <laughs> so, yes, I enjoy it. Yeah, that's what I kind of like about it in a strange way. Now, this is for all our Philly listeners out there. If you have family in Philadelphia, they are prohibiting most indoor gatherings through January 1st, joining a lot of cities across the U.S. that have begun to shut down because of the COVID-19 spreading relentlessly. High schools and colleges in Philadelphia are moving to remote learning. Restaurants must revert back to takeout, delivery, and outdoor dining only. Businesses like bowling alleys, movie theaters, arcades will once again have to shut their doors. Religious institutions have some leeway, but must limit their indoor gatherings to five people per 1,000 square feet. So you have to be like a VIP churchgoer, I guess. The new series of safer at home restrictions go into effect this Friday and will run into the beginning of the new year with extensions and additional restrictions possible according to this new order. And this time around, public and private gatherings are the main target. Listen to this. Indoor gatherings involving more than one household are prohibited, both in public and in private spaces. So that uh, was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so I told you I had a vaccine-related story. And, of Mm -hmm. course, it has to do with one queen. um, Because, as we know, this week, Moderna... What is it? Moderna? (laughs) 
Moderna. Moderna, is that it? Sounded very Southern of you, Moderna. (laughs) Well, this week, Moderna announced early results show that, you know, obviously COVID-19 vaccine is 94.5% effective. And we're about to talk about it. Well, a report published in the New England Journal of Medicine credits the Dolly Parton COVID research fund. Um, Basically, she donated a million dollars to Vanderbilt back in April towards some COVID-19 research. And now we're seeing that girl, she basically has saved our lives. Here she is talking about it on the Today Show. I'm sure you've heard through the grapevine that you're trending uh, this morning online for the Dolly Parton Research Fund's donation toward the COVID vaccine. So in the midst of all of this craziness that we're living, your dollars really are making a difference. Yeah, that's what I understand this morning. I haven't read up enough. They told me that just before I went on the air that they may (laughs) be asking me about that. So I'm just happy that Anything I do can help somebody else. And when Mm -hmm. I donated the money to the COVID fund, I just wanted it to do good. And evidently, it is. Let's just hope we find a cure real soon. I mean, is there anything Dolly Parton can't do? I mean, she's pretty incredible. And I told you had a bit of a twang to it. It's like Aunt Moderna. (laughs) Dolly Parton's involved. Yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) Moderna. Oh, my God. I was just making sure that sounded right. But yeah, this is really exciting news. And a million dollars really goes a long way when it comes to Mm, COVID-19 research. And I'm so excited that we will see what happens. But I know we're going to talk more about it because I always tend to be a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to these vaccine announcements. But that's your tea report. This is where we're at in 2020, making jokes about vaccines. Yep. Moderna. (laughs) That would happen. Yeah, uh, now coming up, in all all seriousness, what you need to know about the latest COVID-19 vaccines and how they will be distributed, we discuss that next with our infectious diseases expert, Dr. Michael Sag, in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. A lot of COVID-19 vaccine news as of late. So which is more effective, Moderna or Pfizer Biotech's vaccine? And here to break them both down is infectious diseases expert, Dr. Michael Sag. Dr. Michael, is this like a, a celebratory time for you in the midst of a lot of tragedy, obviously, because it feels like we're close to something? Yeah, I feel a little bit like Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. Mm-hmm. So the best is clearly the vaccine news. I, and I don't think many people expected these vaccines to work to the degree that they did. Some people wondered whether they would work at all. And if they did think it would work, maybe at the 60, 70% efficacy, this was 90% plus. Who in the world? There are very few vaccines that are that effective measles, perhaps, maybe the uh, shingles vaccine. This is not just a home run. This is, at least for the early evidence, uh, a grand slam. Well, Dr. Sachs, should we be comparing what we've heard from Pfizer and BioNTech uh, to Moderna? Like, has this just turned into a race on who can make the vaccine quicker? I think you could look at it that way. I look at it 180 degrees different. Yeah, I'm a skeptic. I'm more negative. (laughs) Well, that's okay. So I think we both have valid points of view. What I would say is there's no way that a single company can provide all of the needed vaccine and the time frame that's going to be required. So the more folks we have in the game, the better. And to the point that these vaccines showed not only that they worked, but the proof of concept was established that you can prevent infection. So I would predict, guess maybe is a better word, that most of the vaccines that are in development right now are going to work. Maybe not exactly to the same degree, but that's outstanding news because we have 
330 million people in the United States and around the world, we've got whatever up to 4 billion people who are going to need some degree of protection against this coronavirus. There's no way that a single company could pull that off. Right. So more power to us. Yeah. Again, we're talking to infectious diseases expert, Dr. Michael Sag. You bring up a few things that I want to talk about, but I guess first is which one seems more reliable from testing and protocols, or you're saying both of them are pretty much reliable. If you had a choice of both, either would work. Correct. There's some nuances between them that I think are worth pointing out. The number one difference is that the Pfizer uh, BioNTech vaccine, as you've heard about in the news, requires this cold chain transport, which means it has to be held at minus 70, minus 80 degrees Celsius, which is really, really cold, dry ice cold. And so if that gets, if that cold chain gets broken and say the dry ice evaporates and the the contents warm up for anything more than a couple hours, that vaccine is shot. It's not going to work. The Moderna requires cold, but not to the same degree. And so uh, refrigeration freezing, in essence, can keep it intact. So it's going to be a little bit more durable. And that's good news in terms of getting vaccinations to more rural communities, which may not have the capacity or ability to keep it at minus 80. So I think the key words that jump out for me is the high efficiency. You know, does that mean we can finally achieve herd immunity quicker? Yes. Now we can finally use the word herd immunity in the proper context. Yeah. The notion of using herd immunity for everyone to get infected, 240 million people of which six to eight million will die, doesn't feel good to me. Yeah. Um, So the notion of a vaccine that will prevent that. Yes. So what we would want to see is of the 330 million people in the U.S., we'd like to see about 240 million or 220, 240, 60, 70% of us have immunity to coronavirus, and then we bend the curve. Then there's not enough fuel of eligible patients or susceptible patients to become infected, and the virus infection starts to burn out. That's what we're shooting for. Mm. Got it. And how does it work in terms of distribution? Who's responsible for that? Is it the CDC? Is it the World Health Organization? Each country does their own deals with these companies. How does that work? Right now, what I'm understanding is that most countries are going to be doing it on their own. But I think the World Health Organization will be involved in some way. But for the U.S., it's going to be our government. The Operation Warp Speed that President Trump set up, (laughs) part of that was designed to have distribution. We'll see. We don't know the details of it, but I think that's one thing we can say uh, was thought of and and hopefully is developed. I know the Biden administration and their task force, uh, this is top on their list. So there are so many caveats, right? Um, There are side effects, you know, the results are preliminary and the vaccine requires two doses. But I think my concern is the side effects. How do you prepare for the distribution of that? You know, what are some of your safety concerns? Well, you you raise a good point. We we need a full data set. Right now we have two press releases, but I think those are pretty accurate. We do need to know more details about safety. Absolutely. But it seems that the safety is fairly well established to this point. It's short term, so we need no longer term safety. But I think this is behaving in a way that there are no huge red flags. I think it'll be relatively safe, especially compared to getting COVID and getting sick. So that's kind of what we're weighing out here. Right. Well, Dr. Michael Sag, thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having me back. Dr. Michael Sag is an infectious diseases expert out of Alabama. 
And coming up on the show, Trump officials are rushing to auction off rights to an Arctic National Wildlife Refuge before Biden can block it. The impacts of this decision next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the day. Yes, Queen. Now, two weeks ago, Democratic lawmaker Richie Torres, who we've uh, covered on the show, we haven't had him on yet. But, but close. He, I mean, yeah, he's my he's my future husband. He's he's hot I and mean, he's yeah, very smart. Yes. Well, we could still, uh, you know, ogle over him. He became the first openly gay Afro Latinx person to be elected to Congress when he was elected to represent New York State's 15th congressional district, which covers the South Bronx. And he and other new Congress members went to Washington for new member orientations last week. And we covered some of that as well. Well, over the weekend, of course, uh, there was the MAGA march, right? And he kind of found himself in the middle of it. And he posted this on Saturday. About an hour ago, I was traveling from the Capitol to the Hyatt Hotel when a MAGA demonstrator screaming from a microphone called me a homeboy in a suit. And he says, sorry, MAGA, but the name is Congressman-elect Richie Torres. And the tweet had over a quarter of a million likes and over 21,000 comments. Many were supportive. And of course, there were those homophobic trolls. But let's not talk about them. And after some reflection, he posted this video really owning where he's at right now on social media. Hello, everyone. I'm Congressman-elect Richie Torres from the Boogie Down Bronx. I never thought in my wildest dreams as a poor kid of color that I would go from public housing in the Bronx to the people's house in Washington, D.C. I am fired up and I'm looking forward to causing good trouble. Now, we love that. And he also told Reuters last week, just to bookend this, we're witnessing the collapse of politics as an old boys club and we're witnessing the embrace of America as a multiracial, multiethnic, inclusive democracy. So again, a yes queen to Richie Torres. Yes, queen. All right, now we'll have to get him on the show. That's for sure. And that does it for today's show. But we are back tomorrow, same time, live right here on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be talking about the ethics of human vaccine trials for COVID-19. And is it really the only option? You know, uh, uh, DJ Alex D, she's been going through some uh, trials. I feel like we should should see if she wants to come on and talk about it. I did not know that. That's really interesting. I actually know someone else who has also. So I think it's time now to talk about that, actually. And how snails became the latest pet trend of 2020. Snails. Not snails that you eat. Snails that you enjoy as a pet. And if you're wondering who picked that story, it was Shira. (laughs) It's not random. This was featured in The Guardian. And I actually have a friend who's a big social media personality that was featured in this. So we're going to get her on to talk about why she decided to end up having a pet snail. Define big social media personality. Define what that is. That is on tomorrow's show. And if you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. Join our podcast family. Just go to the radio.com app and where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, you better remember to slay, y'all. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye. 
Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. On the next show, the ethics of human vaccine trials for COVID-19. And is it the only option? And how snails became the latest pet trend of 2020. Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q. Or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.